This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Maliha Sayed. Today, we're going to hear how Washington Governor Jay Inslee plans to tackle key issues in his final year in office. We are making an investment so that we still have a Washington that we will recognize in the decades to come. We're making an investment for our kids. On January 4th, Crosscut anchor Paris Jackson sat down with Inslee to discuss his priorities for 2024 before he leaves his role as Washington's governor, a position he's held for more than a decade. Later this year, voters will choose a candidate to take up the post in 2025. In his interview with Jackson last week, the governor talked about housing and homelessness, climate policies, government transparency, police violence, the upcoming election, and, of course, the University of Washington's football team. Despite Inslee's very confident prediction, which you'll hear more than once, the Huskies lost 13-34 to to the Michigan Wolverines Monday evening. Well, Governor, first and foremost, thank you for giving us some time and out of your schedule to, to join us today. Thank you. We are just a, a couple of days into the new year. You have a lot of priorities on your to-do list, as you've said quite often, um, as you're kind of tempering down your, your time in leadership. One thing that I'm curious about is, do you have any New Year's resolutions or intentions as you're looking at this, this final year in office? Well, I've decided to really have a difficult resolution, which is to be gracious and humble when the Huskies win the national championship <laughs> over, over Michigan and, and, and help my fellow governor, Gretchen <laughs> Whitmer, get through her loss. So that's my, that's my resolution. I'm sticking to it. And a lot of people are with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. One thing that um, is a cornerstone of, of your um, time in office has been uh, the environment before you were governor as well as an elected official, what do you wish the general public would understand about the urgency of the world's ecological challenges? Well, I think the large majority of Washingtons do have an understanding of this, in part because they're now experiencing it. I'm not sure you could say that 10 years ago, but now Washingtonians have a situation where their kids can't go out and play because of the forest fire smoke. Uh, they've seen Medical Lake, a whole town, burned down uh, last summer. They're seeing salmon stocks uh, disappearing in part because of water temperature issues. And they're seeing their children have asthma because of pollution from burning uh, gas and oil. So they now are experiencing this. They're seeing incredible flooding events, you know. We have these amazingly increased floods that are happening because we're getting these deluges uh, because the hotter air can hold more water and you get these big rainstorms. So I think the vast majority of Washingtons actually do now understand that this is not something that's just for our grandchildren. We're experiencing it right now. And unfortunately, this is the tip of the iceberg, that it's going to become much more dramatic over the long term. So the good news is that people are now seeing what is coming, and this is just the opening act of climate change, unfortunately. It really should be called... Uh, a climate crisis or a climate collapse. Right. Uh, they're seeing mass migration around the globe where millions of people are now having to leave their homes because you can't grow crops if it's too hot and too dry. So I think that's why they're uh, asking for action. They're committed uh, to do what we do in our state, which is to innovate the future and create a new future around clean energy. They're now using new insulation and heat pumps. Uh, they're using uh, free bus rides for kids. We're using our heads so that we can save our hearts and our children. And I, I believe Washington's, Washingtonia is very committed to that. 
And, and with that, um, you've kind of alluded to some of the things that we are doing here in the state. Um, are we making enough progress to adopt more of these climate-friendly technologies, not only, of course, here, right. but across the nation? Well, we are moving faster than the rest of the nation. We arguably have the best climate and clean energy policies in the United States, in part because they focus on equity as well, so that communities of, of, of poverty who've been you know, choking on the most pollution gets the, the most help and the like. Uh, so you can see that's on the good side. We're doing very meaningful things. We have a commitment to 100% clean energy. We have a low carbon fuel standard. We have the best building standards in the United States. We're gonna make sure people get access to heat pumps so you don't have to use dirty, dangerous, toxic methane gas. We have a Climate Commitment Act that is now generating funds that goes back to Washingtonians instead of just going into the $200 billion profits of the oil companies. So we have all those really active things. That's good news. But in direct answer to your question, no, we have to continue to accelerate our progress to get that 100% clean goal which we've established. There will need to be some additional action, additional investment, and we are planning to do those things. We're bringing on electric ferry boats so we don't have to breathe, passengers don't have to breathe that diesel smoke. Uh, we're bringing on electric vehicles and charging station. The price of these is coming down very dramatically. The ex access is going up. The range of electric cars is coming up. There's a company in Moses Lake, two companies in Moses Lake that are building the world's best battery it can increase the range of an electric car from 20 to 50%. So we got all those good things are happening, but we do need to do, uh, make sure that they, they happen faster. This is a race. This is a race between us and pollution. And I'm committed that we're gonna win this race because our kids deserve this. I, I, I just can't believe that we're gonna allow our grandchildren to have no ice on Mount Rainier, no salmon in the river, and not be able to go out and play because the forest fire smoke is so terrible. I can't believe that's an acceptable future for us. And one thing that you just mentioned in regard uh, to those communities that are impacted by the ch our changing climate, um, one of the things you're proposing is the utility rebates for yes. low and middle income uh, Washingtonians. With one year of those rebates going on currently, is it enough to make up for those energy increases? Well, uh, uh, it's, a, it's something that's meaningful, I can say that. Maybe we should make it more permanent as well. It's something we ought to consider as well. It is significant. It will help 2 million Washingtonians. It's not insignificant to have $200 a family to help, but perhaps that should be permanent. But I want to, there's really kind of a, a secret here that people have not got yet. There's two ways, actually there's a hundred ways to help people with the economic consequences of anything that we do. One is cash, and the utility credit is in a sense cash. But the other is to get people equipment, services, and resources to replace the need to buy fossil fuels. And that's what we're doing. So we're getting our children free bus rides. So now you're a family member, you got kids under 18, you don't have to pay for their transportation, okay? We're getting people solar panels you put on your roof. I met a orchard worker, ag worker in Toppenish the other day. You know, we got solar panels on her roof. Her utility bill is now zero for her family. Wow. Now that's different than cash, but it has the same benefit because it can save you money over the long run. Getting people more charging stations, getting uh, schools electric school buses right now so they don't have to buy old dirty stinky buses. And here's an important one. Our schools are having a problem with air quality because the smoke from forest fires is becoming so dangerous. So getting them 
filtration system so our kids can have cleaner air to breathe. All of these things are helpful, even economically for people, as well as health-related. And fundamentally, this is a health issue. There was a report uh, two days ago or three days ago showing 16 Washington communities have had such respiratory disease associated with fossil fuel pollution that their average lifespan is two and a half years shorter than the rest of the state of Washington. Think about what that means. You're losing your loved ones two and a half years earlier. This is not something we got to get on top of. So my point is this, the Climate Commitment Act is helping people in a lot of ways, not just cash. And it's a perfect segue to speaking upon the Climate Commitment Act. As we're just kind of talking about how this program is <clears throat> providing a ton of benefits, critics are arguing that uh, these utility rebates, um, they believe are your attempt to kind of buy favor with voters. How do you respond to what critics have to say in that regard? Well, I'm not sure we're, we're buying anything. First off, I'm not running for office again, so it's not something that I have to worry about. What we're doing is to try to buy health for people. This is fundamentally a health issue. It is about pollution. And one of the things I think people have forgotten what this, this act is called, it is the Climate Commitment Act. It is about pollution. It is about limiting pollution. And fundamentally, the most important thing that this does is to reduce the amount of pollution that our children and we are breathing. That's the number one goal. And it is working on that because it no longer is going to let the oil companies have $200 billion of profits and pollute willy-nilly as much as they want. It finally gives Washingtonians what they deserve, which is a limit on the amount of pollution that's going into the sky. So we think that has value. Sometimes other people in the Republican Party don't think that has value. I think when a, a person doesn't die prematurely, that has value to us. So uh, that's what we're, quote, buying, and that is a worthwhile investment. The investment in our kids so that they have clean air in their schoolroom is a worthwhile investment to make. The thing we're doing to help utility people, people are struggling, particularly at the lower end of our economic situation. It is the right thing to do to help them in many ways. We're helping them with the utility proposal. We're helping them with free transportation for their kids. We're helping them to get additional insulation and solar panels. We're helping them with uh, all kinds of different ways to help them. I think that's the right thing to do. And some are also arguing with that regard, there is, you're providing a long list of things that are providing benefits here in the state. Yeah. And some are saying, but the gas prices are tough, they're high, I can't afford to yeah. fill up my tank. In what ways do you respond to the impact or the way that the program has been set up where yeah. it, it is an impact to uh, the pain at the pump, essentially? Well, I think looking at uh, the reality, what has happened, uh, gas prices came down $1.50 in the months right before this was adopted. They came down, they did not go up. They actually came down just before this was adopted. And since October, they have come down another dollar, a full dollar. So what I could say is the, the gas prices that we all can be concerned about, people have hated gas prices since they invented the Model T, I can guarantee you that. But since this has been adopted, they actually have come down dramatically by a dollar. And yes, there are some compliance costs that the oil companies have to buy at an auction for these permits. That's true. We always knew that there would be some compliance cost of this. And we want to bring that compliance cost down 
this is sound a little technical, but it's important, by linking our carbon markets with California and Quebec. Mm -hmm. We think this will have a, an opportunity to reduce the compliance costs to help uh, in that regard. But fundamentally, just let me come back to say why we're making an investment. We are making an investment so that, so that we still have a Washington that we will recognize in the decades to come. We're making investment for our kids. And that's what we do. We invest in their schools, and now we're investing in their air that they can breathe. And I just don't believe Washington State is a state that wants to go backwards in our fight against pollution. And I also think we need a little more fairness for consumers when it comes to oil companies. They have been whipsawing us. They have had over $200 billion of profits while they've increased some of our gas prices. We need to get to the bottom of this to see if we're being gouged. And that's why we have a bill that will bring transparency to this to really find out what's going on. That's the right thing to do. But also fundamentally, we want to drive gas prices down to zero. Zero. Because that's what you have to pay when you have an electric car. And instead of uh, gas, paying natural gas for your home if you've got a heat pump and use electricity. We want the price of gas to be zero in a sense. And that transition is happening very, very rapidly for people. Uh, when people can get a solar panel and use clean electricity instead of having to pay the gas company, so that price goes to zero, that's a good thing and that's what we're driving. Switching gears, let's let's talk about the housing um, and, and affordability. Our reporters have been focused on this issue a lot through our, our reporting at Crosscut. Mm -hmm. What are some of the next things our state and local governments can do to make Washington a place where many of us, uh, all of us for that matter, can afford to live and raise our families? Well, the largest thing we can do is build housing because this is the most fundamental problem. Homelessness is largely a housing crisis. We do not have enough housing units for our people. And when you have a million people move into your state, like we've had in the last decade and a half, but you only build 300,000 housing units, you're going to get homelessness. And so we fundamentally have to find a way to build more housing units. There's a variety of things we can and are doing about. One of those, we're making significant public investment, you know, up to $900 million in the last session of the legislature. So we can build more housing so there's housing for people to have. Housing doesn't come out of, you know, the tooth fairy. You got to build it. You got to have a way to finance it. That doesn't mean the public's actually doing the work. The private sector is doing the building. But we do need additional public investment. Uh, we need it for our right-of-way initiative. As you know, we've been very successful. We've removed 32 encampments down off our highways. There has been a significant improvement driving up I-5, 405 right now. But we're out of money on the right-of-way initiative to continue to move people into housing. We need to restock that. I've asked for $100 million to keep that ball rolling. We also need to accelerate the ability to build housing, which means we need to accelerate the time it takes to get a permit. And that's why I'm glad we passed a bill last year to accelerate the permitting. And we have to have additional places to build housing. So we need to continue the reform effort in our zoning laws so we have more places to build. Now, in addition to the housing, a lot of folks who are homeless, not all, but many have chemical addiction problems, many have mental health challenges, and we have to make sure the services are available for those people that when we get them into housing, they don't relapse and go right back on the street. And that means getting chemical addiction treatment, mental health treatment for them, that has to be part of the solution. And you've included funding within yes. your proposal, yes, your we, budget we have, proposal Yes, we have proposed that. over $400 million of behavioral health. It's a fairly massive new investment. 
it's needed, and it's, this is not just for homeless folks, obviously. I mean, families that have a 15-year-old in a mental health crisis, we need to get those, those young people help. They, don't, they shouldn't have to wait eight months to get in. Right. We have all kinds of people that in, in all of our families are touched by mental health challenges. So we need substantial investment in the number of people doing this work, in the places they can do the work, and in the kind of places where they can do the work. We need to kind of soup the nuts, the, the walk-in clinic so you can get help right away, the appointment so you can get it, and the higher level residential care, because some people are going to need long-term residential care as well. And we've proposed throughout that spectrum to help. Governor, let's talk about legislative privilege, because as we know, some members of the legislature have been claiming for years that they have legislative privilege and they want to keep their emails, um, their documents, uh, and a list of other things to themselves and away from the public. You have not claimed um, your legal right to an executive privilege. Has your opinion thus far changed on this, this legislative privilege? Well, I'm speaking for my house, which is the executive branch. I'm not trying to dictate it to the legislative branch. What I have found is, is that um, you can operate uh, and still have transparency. We have found that not claiming an executive privilege can be effective. We're still able to do business. We're still able to have communication. We have found a way to make that work. I, I frankly, as a former legislator, think that's possible in a legislative context as well. But that's something for them to handle, not the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And the judicial branch has made some decisions recently about the constitutional right of some legislative principle. That's, that's the judicial branch speaking. I don't run that branch. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's talk about elections, the upcoming election. Um, it has all the makings to be potentially tumultuous as it's frankly, it already is. Do you think Washington should consider keeping presidential candidates that have been credibly accused of starting an insurrection off the primary ballot? I think this is a decision for the judicial uh, branch. This is a decision for our courts to decide. I don't think it should be for politicians uh, like myself. It should be for judges who can judge the facts who can judge whether a person was engaged in an insurgency and, and whether their office is uh, included under the 14th Amendment. Those are decisions I'm confident will be made. Uh, I can't tell you which way they will be made, but I think that the, the Supreme Court will have to ferret out that decision. In making that decision, I think it's appropriate that you have a fair trying of whether or not uh, someone was engaged in an insurgency. I think there's a lot of evidence in this case that there was someone engaged in a conspiracy or an insurgency, but that needs to be decided in, in the courts, and I'm confident it will be. And when it is, we're going to need to respect it. We're going to need to respect the judicial decision, pro or con. And I think we need to be committed to that because that's a fundamental thing to our, uh, to our democracy, which I believe is in threat because we have a person now that fundamentally doesn't want to respect the will of the voters. That's a threat and I hope we can surmount it. A couple days before Christmas, there was uh, some news that came out with regards to a, a pretty closely watched case. Um, the Manny Ellis, the officers that were involved or uh, accused of uh, in, in his death, and they were acquitted. Um, and this trial was the first under the state authority to prosecute police for misconduct. Mm -hmm. The verdict has left, as you can imagine, many raw and um, my question to you is, what have we learned in these type of cases where we are seeing a, 
black and brown and low income communities disproportionately impacted by these types of incidents. What, what have we learned in this regard? Well, I think we've learned that it's really important to have a credible investigation to start with. Uh, I asked that investigation to take place. We now have an independent investigation agency to do that independently, who are not police officers, but an independent source. I think this has demonstrated the wisdom of that, of having and insisting upon a truly independent investigation to get the facts uh, as, as, as best as you can ascertain them. I think that the police accountability laws that were embraced here, uh, I signed them, I think that they were appropriate. And then the jurors made a decision. And the one thing we have learned is that when jurors make a decision, somebody's unhappy. Uh, I've been a trial lawyer for long enough to know that. Uh, but I don't think that the Ellis case displays, at least in my view, that somehow we should give up on the judicial system. Uh, the jurors made a decision. They heard the evidence. There were some questions about the wisdom of some of the trial court's evidentiary ruling that are controversial. I may not have made the same decision, but we have to have a process, and we had one here, and I know people who were not satisfied with it feel passionately about it. But I think we are heading in the right direction to make sure we have more independent assessment of police uh, conduct here. That's what we need. And I, unfortunately, there'll be more cases where we do that. Now, let's pivot. We're still kind of talking about this environmental impact in terms of how uh, the Cap and Invest program is working here in our state. And, and one thing that we're also curious about is how, as you've also laid out, how do we help the public understand the importance of this particular program? We make sure they all read Crosscut. That's, that's this. <laughs> you should have that right. befo before you have breakfast every morning. Uh, I think it's just uh, trying to uh, uh, disseminate the science is the best way to do this. What is the science behind this? I think we do well when we make decisions based on science. We had a relatively successful fight with COVID because we made decisions based on science, not on ideology. But what is the science? And we saved a lot of people's lives because we do that. did that. I think the same is true in climate change. We're making decisions based on science. And the more science that we can spread to, for people to evaluate, we're better in every avenue uh, that we can. And that's what we are trying to do. But I have to tell you, I think we're almost moving into a new phase of the discussion about climate change. Because it is no longer just a hypothetical graph on a chart. I remember in the first day when I brought Al Gore to Congress to show members of Congress, this was, I don't know, 20 years ago, to show them the science behind this subject. And, you know, he was chock-a-block with graphs and he's right, he's brilliant on this subject. But we're moving beyond that. We're now, we're now in the age of consequence. We used to be in the age of prediction. Now we're in the age of consequence. We are, we are, we are, we are uh, experiencing these things in real time. And when a person is standing uh, uh, in the middle of the ashes that was their home, it's not a matter of, of a graph, it's a tragedy. And that's what we're experiencing now. So I think it's a new level of understanding that is happening because of the tumult that we are experiencing. And I've seen this firsthand. Look, this is not kind of a hypothetical to me. I remember going to see a fire in Wenatchee a few years ago and pulling up to the curb is a really nice little suburban area in western northwestern Wenatchee and this uh, presumably husband and wife were just standing in the middle of the ashes of their home just hugging and she was bawling and 
it just grabs you, right? And this is happening time and time again, and we cannot accept that. So I've seen it firsthand time and time again as a governor, and I want to uh, eliminate that. By the way, I just thought of something in answer to your previous question, if I can, about this issue of, of uh, police interaction with citizens. One of the things we need to do is to continue our effort to have better training for our law enforcement officials, to teach them de-escalation techniques, to teach them how to have reduced violence, more rational discussion with citizens rather than violence, uh, teach them how to work with the mental health professionals so you can get people mental health treatment when they need it in times of distress. And I'm pleased to say we're doing that. We're opening two new criminal justice training centers. I'm going to one tomorrow in Vancouver, actually, that are training that, to our, that are providing that training. And this is a big deal. When I went to the training center last year in Kent, I met this guy who's a trainer, and he said, I used to work in Las Vegas, and I'd get into a fight every week with somebody when I was, as a police officer. Mm -hmm. And then I came up here and I was trained on how to de-escalate problems. And I've been in a fight since I've been in service here. And so that's what we want is de-escalation. We're doing it big time. Now we need some more officers to do it with. We don't have enough officers right now in these training centers to help us get more officers as well. Anyway, uh, this is the work we're doing. Appreciate that. Um, we're in a time where there's a lot of heaviness go on, not only some things that we're dealing with here at home, mm -hmm. but around the world. Yeah. But there's also some things to, to celebrate. And um, we talk about celebrations just a couple of days from now. Uh, your alma mater is going to take to the field against Michigan. Um, I'm not sure if you're a, you're a man of uh, gambling or, or betting or <laughs> you know all of those things, but if you could throw out what you anticipate that final score to be, Governor, what do you think, uh, how, how are the Huskies gonna come out? Well, it's just gonna shock you that I think the Huskies are gonna be on top. I know this is a shocking <laughs> feeling. and it, Score. I, but I actually do have that feeling. I don't know that much about the Michigan team. I don't follow the defensive alignments as well as maybe some. But I gotta tell you, this Husky team, you know, they have some secret out there that's, a, I think, a combination of their resilience. And, you know, when you hear them talk, they all talk about how they love each other. Yeah. And when the going gets tough, we love each other. There's a minute to go, but we believe in each other. I believe in the guard. The guard's going to protect me, and I'm going to throw a touchdown pass. And they believe that. And that belief, it gets them through these incredibly close games. And then there might be somebody looking out for them on the, on the divine side, too. You never know. But it's, it's hard <laughs> not to believe in them um, uh, pulling this out. But looking forward to a, a tremendous game. It's been quite a ride. It's going to be a, a must-watch game. Before we, we wrap this up again, um, thank you for the opportunity. But I've read that you consider this time right now for you in office as your fourth quarter. Or uh, I, one description was you're trying to cross the tape on the track as your dad was a, a track coach. Mm -hmm. Is there anything left undone? Of course, you still have a whole year. But is there anything that you still like a hope and dream that you just want to get caught. You bet. I'm, I'm as excited today as I were on the first day. Now, maybe you think that's a cliche, but it's true. I literally feel as excited as the first day I took this office because there's still, there's thousands of people I can help in the next 12 months. I can help those families who have a teenager in crisis get help. I can help somebody who's, uh, whose brother has been homeless for years because they have a chemical addiction problem get off the homelessness. I can help, uh, you know, in the public safety arena. And I can certainly help uh, our kids to have a future 
So they don't, they don't have a diminished Washington state and they're not breathing smoke all the time, which to me is an important thing. So, you know, listen, this is a very lucky position I'm in to be able to help people. It is a blessing. Not everybody, everybody gets up every morning and figure out how can I help somebody? It, it's a wonderful thing. And I've got a very, very lucky year ahead to continue that effort. Now, having you said, is there stuff gonna be undone? Yes, after I'm gone, there will still be the common cold to <laughs> defeat and, uh, and, and still more football games to win. So, but we've had a heck of a run. This, this last decade has been one of, I would argue, unparalleled uh, progress for the state of Washington. Best family leave, protection of women's choice, uh, gun safety, uh, highest minimum wage, uh, best financial aid package so people can get to school, uh, the McCleary decision on, on financing schools, which was a huge lift, huge transportation uh, efforts. Now, we, we gotta make sure all of those continue, and uh, that's why I'll be real active this next year. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Governor. Thank you. Taking the time to talk with us with Crosscut. Thank you. We appreciate it. Go dogs. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Paris Jackson with help from Joseph O'Sullivan and Donna Blankenship. It was produced by Sarah Bernard and me, Maliha Sayed. Thanks to Amanda Snyder, Bryce Yukio Adolfson, and Shannon Ortali for the production of the interview. You can watch a video version of this conversation on Crosscut Now, our TV news program. Find it at crosscut.com or at kcts9.org. The story editor for Crosscut Reports is Ryan Famuliner. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of this interview with Governor Inslee. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Maliha Sayed. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>